0: Hey friends, welcome to another edition of the Tennis and Bagels Podcast. This is Von here today, and we're recording on the back of another Miami Open in the books. And I thought, no better way to recap this tournament than to bring on the host of Monday Match Analysis, the host of three, tennis channel commentator, and now a vlogger as well. He is a friend, a fellow Southern California resident. Please welcome Gil Gross.
1: Gil, how are you this Monday evening? I am great. Uh, great to be on with you. Good job hiding your your sadness about the San Diego State Aztecs, but it was a good run. And um, there's a, you should keep your chin high as as you are doing.
0: Yeah, as as uh, some of our been may not know, it's uh, yeah March Madness, and yeah, I mean San Diego, what a run by them to get to the final. But my sadness aside, let's get on to the the, t- the tennis itself at uh, the Hard Rock Stadium because. Gil, I know you were there, especially for the first few days of the tournament. What were, what were your kind of your general impressions of being on site versus, you know, watching it from afar, maybe since 2019, since the move to away from
1: Crandon Park? So the funny thing is I actually have been to both sites, but I was pretty young when I went to the Crandon Park location. And you'll be able to tell by who I saw. I, uh, I saw Sharapova and Ferrer mm. for a day session um, on Key Biscayne. And, you know, the the experience is extremely different from what I remember. First of all, it's tough to get uh, to Key Biscayne. Like, obviously, it's an island. It's not on the mainland of Florida. So you end up going on this super long bridge, uh, one lane. Lots of, I think, congestion is, is a risk there. And it's just kind of far from where you're probably staying. If you're hanging out in Miami or, like, where I was, Fort Lauderdale, Uh, It would be way further. Uh, Obviously, Hard Rock Stadium is a beautiful and enormous NFL stadium, and I think there's a cool factor there and a uniqueness factor there. The criticisms about the aesthetics of the courts and how they are not beautiful a la Rome, a la Monte Carlo, a la Wimbledon, those criticisms are, are fair, but I think they make up for it in, in other ways. They did they did an amazing job with the grounds. And when you consider the idea or, or the fact that it's all temporary, when you look around and you think they built this just for these really like 13 days, it's, it's absolutely remarkable what they're able to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the stadium is huge. I mean, you can, you know, if you see it on TV, um, you know, even a packed stadium feels somewhat sparsed, I guess you could say the seating feels very sparsed. I, I particularly actually am a big fan of the court colour. I think it's Me too. Visually visually it looks nice. I like the blue and kinda the different type of blue compared to like, let's say Australia, but it really actually hits pretty nicely with the TV, especially the, the colors in the background. But um being on the grounds itself, what were some of the I guess you could say the advantages of being credentialed because, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like just, just, just what were some of the things Did you feel like you had their access or you were able to, were there like too many restrictions in terms of
1: getting interviews or things like that? Good question. I, I had some great moments in press conferences that I was really happy to have. I, you know, I asked Medvedev questions that I wanted to ask him. I asked Alcaraz a question. That, that I ended up putting in the vlog and putting on Twitter, so you may have seen that one. Uh, Pagula, uh, I, I got to ask some fun questions too. Um, that said, uh, I think I would have talked to a lot more players had they're not had it been a little bit less restrictive in terms of um, players who are not given press conferences, which would be any player, pretty much any player who didn't play on center court would not get a press conference. You had to request those players, and if you did not request those players, then you were unable to, uh, to, to join their media availability, I should say. And for me, being at the tournament, um, I did not want to request you know, specific players and be beholden to waiting for them and keeping an eye on my phone and seeing when they were going to be ready, because it, it, differ, it differs really vastly. When a, when a match ends, they could be ready in one hour, three hours. And I just uh needed to keep the flexibility and and you know, didn't have the the mission of let's say someone who is a uh writing for The Guardian in the UK, they have a very clear, you know, uh, agenda there where they have to cover Radu Kanu, they're gonna cover Nori, they're gonna request these players. Their editors tell them this is what you this is what we want you to write about. But for me as a general gatherer of information and you know, I was producing a vlog and I do uh, analysis on these players throughout the season. uh, It it would have been a little bit helpful just to be able to pop in and join those media availabilities instead of having to uh, request them before play. Uh, You know, and I don't think that's a Miami Open thing. I think that's an ATP thing and a WTA thing and probably par for the course at every event. Uh, I don't find it to be necessary, uh, but other than that, I think you know there were a lot of areas where where media were uh, accommodated quite well. I mean, it was very comfortable. A lot of the things in terms of in terms of food and um, in terms of space, in terms of uh, the fact that they did credential me in the first place is appreciated. So uh, I, I think it's mostly good. And then another thing that's interesting and sorry to go long on this. Uh, there were some complaints about Indian Wells restricting access for credentialed media members in certain areas. And I will say that the only place that media and players slash coaches were able to interact was the dedicated interview rooms and press conference rooms. Uh, the grassy area, for example, where the players like to warm up, uh, I was I did not have access to to that area, for example. There was somebody I wanted to meet with and didn't get to meet with because I wasn't allowed to go on that area uh so i I do think like as far as the spectrum goes when you're covering a tennis tournament compared to covering other sports the the access is on the lower side in tennis and I think that's how it's been for a very long time oh yeah I mean that's
0: kind of a shame they didn't let you go in the grassy area because I mean in Indian wells that's like you know
1: I, I you know I'm not sure if they actually let like potential media on the grass itself but I know I think they changed it I think they yeah. used to be allowed and I they took it away and it's very important that that journalists are able to create casual relationships with their subject matter and when you only allow that contact to happen in really kind of formal settings it really takes away from what's possible Yeah definitely agree with
0: that um but but that being said, um, you know, what did you think kind of, you know, makes this, I guess one one question I have about, about the um, Miami and Indian Wells thing as a whole, because obviously, you know, in March, it feels like kind of a big deal because it's, it's kind of its own little unique swing, but it's, it's not really leading to the French Open and it's not really, it's far removed from Australia. So you feel like, okay, this is, this is perfect. It kind of occupies a unique place in the calendar. But going forward now that all the Masters are going to be two weeks, and we're going to have, let's say, a four-week Madrid and Rome. And then, you know, I mean, I guess not this year, but the following year, you know, they're going to add in Cincinnati and Canada as well. Um, how, does, how, how does that make you feel? Because personally, I mean, we have a lot of excitement sort of in the first five or six days, and then it really dies down. And then it's kind of like, I mean, unless you're like watching challengers and... Stuff like that, like in the last five or six days, it's it's it really goes down quite considerably
1: in terms of consumption, I guess. Um, do you mean do you mean for for Indian Wells? There's a lot of excitement and then it dies down. Well, I guess Indian Wells and
0: Miami, because we're kind of used to that, like for the for the yeah. longest time. But yeah, now that now that all the Masters are going to be like that, I'm interested to see how, you know what fans kind of think of that.
1: Me too. I think I saw you tweet about this and I think you made a really good point, Vanch, about uh, the fact that there is an appetite for for this in March that that might not be exactly the same in the lead up to a major just because it is so drawn out. But honestly, my my biggest my biggest issue with it is is. I think a little bit different from yours, which is that the first couple days don't feel like a Masters one thousand. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely yeah. a thing as well. Because I
0: mean, thirty two buys in the first, right, first rounds, it definitely doesn't seem as elevated until the weekend.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I I think that the events in that format they really do fall start. I mean, the order of plays on Wednesday and Thursday. Look, I mean, I here's the thing, like there's great tennis, there's great matches. I would go to a challenger and say the same thing. Yeah. But when, when you're trying to fill hard rock stadium, it's not going to happen with that. Uh, you, you have to bring more. And if you're going to label it, you know, that, that masters 1000. And if you're going to ask me, did it feel like a masters 1000 in the first couple of days, I would tell you, no, it, it kind of didn't, uh, because you have the top 32 players who are all getting buys. Uh, that is my main complaint about the format, but I do think that tennis needs to get smarter financially, and for an event to only take place over one weekend, when it can take place over two weekends, uh, the premium product, I, I do think it makes a lot of sense that that there's been an effort to say, no, we need this to go over two weekends. Now, I, I almost wonder if, if there's not something in the middle here. Could we create a format that starts on, on Friday or, or Saturday uh, instead of Wednesday? Uh, and I actually think that slight adjustment could go a long way. Uh, I, I don't know in terms of the draw and the format. And honestly, I haven't thought this out. I'm just thinking about this right now. Uh, but I, I do wonder if there's a middle ground here.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, certainly that, you know, certainly like in, you know, in other masters events like Monte Carlo and stuff, it sort of starts on that Sunday or Monday. But then the, buy, the draw size is reduced significantly. Like it's a fifty-six player draw, and I think eight. You get, you know, eight. The top eight are seated.
1: Yeah, uh, but what I'm buys. saying, what I'm saying though, is if Monte Carlo started on, let's say, because there's no night session, let's say because, let's say it starts on Saturday, uh, they would just, you know, get another day of people not at work, yeah, watching more TV. Now, with the packed schedule of the clay court season, it, it really does move along. It's probably one of—I mean, I think in the old, the old way, it felt like one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting, time in the calendar because it's just big event after big event, uh, you know, week after week, seemingly leading up to Roland Garros. So, I'll be—I'll be interested to see how that how that feels moving forward. Yeah, some, definitely something interesting
0: to monitor. But I guess let's get into the tennis right away. Um, All right, because obviously, Daniil Medvedev. Uh, what a run he's put together now, you know, winning 24 of his last 25 matches, you know, five finals and seven weeks, you know, joins, like, joins the Big Four and Agassiz and uh, Rios and Sampras. He's now won five different Masters events. Uh, we know what a hardcore specialist he is anyway. I mean, this was his 19th title, I and mean, just, like, the stats alone are ridiculous, but when you see his the actual physical effort that he's put in these last seven weeks. I think traveling over, you know, 17 different time zones, if you actually count the flights, and <laughs> the the amount of I, I guess the amount of emotional and mental energy he's he spent as well and I guess the versatility in terms of the competition he beat. Um, you could definitely make an argument that this is the best form he's ever been in. Um certainly post certainly post Australia. I mean I, I don't think anyone expected this level of you know, consistent domination at the in these hardcore events.
1: Yeah. It's been I don't think anybody expected it to this level. It's been yeah. a fairly extreme uh turnaround. The amazing thing is it might be the best form of his life. There are good arguments that there that that maybe he's been in better form and i yeah i was I'm actually curious what is the best run of his career i I think there's two other candidates which you'll be well aware of the the summer of 2019, where he made six finals in a row, starting at the city open and one of them was the U.S. Open final, or the, the end of, of 2020 into the beginning of 2021 when he went on that 20-match win streak, all big events, I think 12 or 13 top yeah, 10 wins, awesome. 12 top 10 wins in the 20, uh, which is just absolutely incredible, which ended in, in the loss to Djokovic at the, in the Australian Open final. So he he's a player, I don't know that he's built this reputation, but he should have this reputation. When he gets hot, he gets smoking hot. Yeah. He's certainly a confidence player, and he sort of carries it
0: through multiple weeks. Um, yeah, I, I remember those runs distinctively very well. He beat the top three players to win the ATP Finals and, you know, had multiple wins over Zverev and, you know, got to the Australian Open Final, won the ATP Cup. Uh, and then obviously, you know, the 2019 is when he really sort of announced himself, um that was kind of his aha moment at the U.S. Open, obviously, when he nearly came back and won the final. But this one, somehow this one, because he's going through different surfaces and going from indoors to outdoors, and because he got to the finals of Indian Wells, where, you know, I, I definitely thought he was going to lose against Alexander Zverev the way that match was panning out. And then, obviously, he had the little injury scare, but then he somehow brushes off the final loss to Alcaraz quite comfortably. And I, I must say, he he was definitely helped. In terms of his draw at this event, because obviously he had a he had a walkover, which I think gave him a little bit of extra time just to recover with some nickels that he probably was having. And then I think, you know, they sort of elevated his level in the final. But um, nonetheless, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what he does sort of on the clay because he has done well on clay in 2019. And I guess he made the Roland Garros quarterfinal and a couple of years back as well. But, um, but this one with such little time between now and and Monte Carlo, I think he was saying in the, on the tennis title desk that the difference is on, on the hard court, he, he feels like he can play his best level. He can get to his best winning ways rather quickly, even if he's at 75 or 80% to begin with. And he can sort of work his way back into matches. But on clay, when he's kind of lost the first set or when he get, gets down it, he it starts to lose faith a bit. So I'm curious to see if that persists.
1: Again. Yeah. I I've always been someone who's... My my stance for a long time has been that Medvedev is going to surprise some people on clay, and and that's with the expectations being very very low. I'm not saying he's going to uh, win Roland Garros or anything like that, but you know the, the yeah. days of you know the days that we saw with uh, Becker and and Sampras where they just weren't competing at all close to the same level on clay that they were on on other surfaces. That just doesn't really happen anymore, and and I feel. That Medvedev is is going to kind of demonstrate that all right, his game does work on clay, kind of like he did making the Roland Garros quarterfinal. I think I got that picked correctly, and I, I don't think a lot of people agreed with me at the time. Um, not to not to like victory lap a prediction, but I, I'm I'm going to continue to predict it like that. You know, I I don't think Medvedev is going to just completely uh, look. I, I think he'll be a top fifteen ish player on clay quite easily maybe even top 10 not top five but i think he'll hover in that range and by the way i think tactically the forehand pace generation has been a little bit better recently and that's a good sign for clay because i think that's been one of the big reasons why he struggled on the surface
0: yeah i was just going to get into that especially in the match against sitter where he averaged uh i think 78 miles per hour on his forehand and sitter was at 77 so, yeah, amazing. You know, that, that, that that was pretty pretty amazing. I think you have to maybe credit the switch from razor Code to razor Soft for Technofiber yeah. strings because, you know, that's certainly, I, I find he's taking it a little earlier. He's injecting a lot more pace into it and he feels a lot more comfortable just with his offensive game off the ground. Um, Yeah, particularly against center, where he was really, I mean, he was challenging center for pace on, on both ground strokes at some point which is, which is pretty tough to do but I did I did feel like Sinner's level in that final. Um, Unfortunately, those physical issues really came to bear because I did feel like in the first ten games or so of the match, Sinner was starting to play well tactically. Uh, You know, starting to hit a lot more forehands than backhands. He started to get Medvedev on the run, hitting his hitting forehands, and he was getting something short, something workable to attack with from the middle of the court. And then he was able to find like you know the way he got the break in the fifth game of the first set just wasn't really able to get that he kind of moved away from his tactic i felt like at five six in the first set that's when he really started to reward back and then you saw him really run out of steam at the end but
1: yeah i agree uh it just looked like the legs weren't strong enough to uh, maintain a level and maintain consistency once the rallies extended and what what he talked about is that it would kind of Linger, his fatigue would linger for the next couple of points after uh, they played a long rally. That that's an awful thing against Medvedev. I mean, I've I've talked about it with with Djokovic uh, with the loss in Dubai. I felt that Novak's cardio didn't look good, and a lot of players can overcome that. But there's nobody I would least there's nobody I would like to play less if my lungs aren't feeling good than Daniil Medvedev, who's just going to make you play a million balls, and if you're not willing to do that, you're in huge trouble just with the way he constructs baseline rallies and with his consistency. Uh, but, it, you know, it's also been amazing to see, you mentioned getting away from the tactics at 5'6". I think you're referring to Sinner kind of just getting into that backhand and backhand yeah. exchange. It's yeah,
0: kind of trading, you know, on the on the backhand right. cross courts, which, yeah, Medvedev is going to win most of the time.
1: He, he is, but it's kind of amazing, right? What does it say about Daniil Medvedev's backhand? that we all kind of have seen Sinner and agree that Sinner really can't trade in that cross-court pattern with Medvedev successfully. Uh, I think Yannick's backhand is widely regarded as a top 10 two-hander in the sport. And up against Medvedev's, it's outmatched. So I think Daniil's backhand deserves a lot of credit for that.
0: Yeah, I think, um, especially when he drops back and he, you know gives up that court position and he just soaks up that pressure so well because not only is he able to keep it so low, but he's able to go back like eight feet behind the baseline and still you know still getting really low net clearance, but somehow he's able to get it super deep in the in the backhand corners. And I just feel like every single thing you throw at him, he, he kinda reminds me of like I, I guess what's a good analogy? Like have you ever played Super Smash Bros Brawl?
1: Yeah, I have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he kinda reminds me of Kirby in that
1: Ah, uh, the absorber.
0: Yeah, in the sense, like it doesn't matter if you throw bombs at Kirby. He's just going to suck up all that air and he's probably just going to swallow everything in his path. Sure. That's that's kind of what Medvedev does. He just eats up the court in that way.
1: Yeah, and that's why Sinner is 0-6 against him because Yannick's best attribute is his pace. And uh, when you play Sinner, you you feel rushed. You feel rushed by his power and his depth. He takes it pretty early for someone who hits as big as he does as well. But against Medvedev... It's not much of an asset. You're going to have to find other ways, uh, like the drop shot, like the volleys. And those things are not developed to the extent that they need to be uh, for Yannick.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I also felt like he didn't use the white serve very effectively. Um, Just kind of a work in progress, I feel like, for him.
1: Yeah, on the deuce uh, Jim, side. Jim Courier brought brought it to our attention that he doesn't serve in volley on the deuce side and then I was I was examining that and of course it, it's spot on. It, it's it's very strange that he only serves in volleys on the ad side uh because I I find I think most players prefer to do it on the deuce side against Medvedev. You have the righty serve, you can get it a little bit further out wide with that spin and uh you know, it puts players in a in a better position sometimes. But for some reason Yannick doesn't doesn't like that he he'll, he'll only do it on the ad yeah for sure i have noticed this, some changes in the surface motion as well from
0: last summer yep definitely feels like he's getting a lot more pop and miles per hour it's just not gonna be as effective against Benvedev though um the miles per hour doesn't really do much against daniel you really have to use that width but
1: this mm-hmm. is
0: but yeah, I I did I you know I was disappointed with the back with the forehand drop shot. I liked that he used it quite a bit, but I just felt like it was a poor execution day. Like I, you know, I've seen that shot be super on, uh, particularly I think the third and thinking back to the third and fourth sets against Tsitsipas at Australian Open. That's when I felt like he had a very good forehand drop shot day, and some other matches
1: I've seen of his as well. But in this match, I just I just felt like it was. I think he might have gone, I think he was either one in six or oh and seven on the drop shot yeah, points, sounds right, from yeah, I mean so i I charted it, but I was missing one because Infosys had it as as seven drop shots, and I only had six, uh, but to your point, I mean, he missed four of them, so yeah. you can't the drop shot is an offensive shot. you play it from a good position, y- you shouldn't make four errors in seven attempts, that's for sure, yeah, absolutely.
0: But uh I guess I guess the more the more captivating performance obviously came for Yannick Sinner in the semis against Carlos Alcaraz and he got his revenge for the Indian Wells semis and just seems like every time these two play, there's really it really feels like there's a huge buzz around this match. And rightfully so. I mean some of the reactions to the point you, you know, everyone knows about that one point at four two left fifteen. Um and I saw someone comparing it on Twitter to a match point that Djokovic had against Stan Wawrinka in 2013 Australian Open, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah. But, um, but definitely, like, the way that Yannick is able to match up against Carlos, it's really exciting for the game because, you know, the way he's able to take so much time away and really just essentially play his normal game at 11 out of 10, that's what I feel like really gets him these wins. You know, and he, he really kind of intimidates Carlos because... I was just looks so rushed and we saw that at Wimbledon we saw that at the US Open we see that again here uh, not as much on, on the Indian Wells courts because they're a little bit slower you can kind of use his court position he doesn't feel can feel like he can really work the point a lot a lot more and he's able to get it the first ball into Sitter's backhand and then kind of take control especially on the return but I just felt like Yanni got better of the serve and return dynamic again and he was able to and really, in this match, what changes, he really outlasted Carlos in a way where I was surprised by the um, dips, I guess, in physicality for, for Alcaraz, just because he had won 21 sets in a row, and it didn't look like any of his matches were super physically taxing. But, you know, maybe, I, I think Ferreira definitely brought this up in the commentary as well, but he feels like like maybe Carlos and his team made a mistake in terms of him not getting hydrated and for something was off in the build up to the match that we probably don't know
1: yeah and i i don't think it's unfair uh i don't i don't think it's unfair speculation because it's it's just we've seen alcaraz we've watched him for a long time now and we know that he it usually takes a lot more than that to get him tired so i thought it was out of character strange you know but at the same time I think sinners put in a lot of physical work on on his end uh I think it was the main focus of his off season and the excuse me the fact that that he held up so so beautifully um is also notable so yeah, I think there's two parts to the match there's the the part where where sinner was able to push him really, really hard again at hundred percent, and then there was the part where Alcaraz fell on his left hand. His backhand wasn't the same for the rest of the match. Do you agree with that? Yeah, a lot of slices, and yeah. his
0: speeds were down as well.
1: Yeah, and even when he started hitting it, it's just it felt like for the rest of the match he didn't hit a great backhand, not once. Yeah. And it, it wasn't it wasn't that noticeable because it's not like the backhand was was horrible, but no longer was was he really, you know, hitting hitting it with the same uh, with the same kind of juice. Uh, acceleration that that normally he does hit it with. So that was a factor. And then the legs went on him very, very quickly in the third set. So those are kind of the two aspects to the match. But yeah, it is quite remarkable how I found that uh, in a lot of the center Alcaraz matches where Yannick has had success, really does feel like his return of serve is burying Alcaraz's serve. That he's just hitting laser beams right at Alcaraz's feet. And then there's no longer any plus one success, and I was looking at at um at the rally length statistics and Sinner on on the Alcaraz serve, Sinner hit one more winner on the fourth shot than Alcaraz hit on the third shot. Yeah, so that tells you that Sinner Sinner literally got more return plus one winners than Alcaraz hit serve plus one winners. Just that's the extent to which Alcaraz has served. Got neutralized here, and and in, at Indian Wells the serve stats were tilted towards Carlos. And what I felt after that match is, look, Yannick's the taller of the two; he's a little bit slower as a result. A little bit might be even a little bit kind. Uh, he has to outserve Alcaraz if he's going to win. He has to. So at Indian Wells he didn't. At in Miami he did. Yeah.
0: Some good points there. I would say, um, I would say though, as soon as Carlos started to get some of that energy back, midway through that third set, I felt like there was a couple of points in there. I want to say in the fifth game, maybe it, maybe it was the sixth game. Yeah, Center was up three two. I think Alcaraz had a second serve backhand, and he just kind of missed it in the net. And I felt like that was his chance because if he if he takes that point and he's able to make Yannick play there potentially we could be looking at a different outcome. But once he missed that, I kind of felt like that was his chance to get the momentum back on his side. And then I don't know once Yannick got the insurance break with some excellent returns, like you were saying, um,
1: it just felt like it wasn't going to be Carlos today. Yeah, and I really liked Sinner's second serve in this match also. More to the forehand, which I think helped Sinner get first ball forehands uh, just because of how difficult it is on the forehand return to to hit to a player's backhand. But also, you have to bring the speed. If you're going to, and, and it wasn't really to the forehand, it was really more body, body forehand, I would say, was, was the main target of Sinner's serve. Uh, if you're going to do that, you do need to bring the speed. Otherwise, you know, you're messing with a, an enormous weapon in Alcaraz's forehand, even on the return. And Center averaged 100 miles per hour, actually 101 on, on the second serve which was really, really crucial. Um, that, that was another reversal, in, in my opinion, because you look at the U.S. Open and in Indian Wells, it felt like Alcaraz was attacking the second serve return with a lot of success, especially at the U.S. Open. A lot on the ad side, the backhand return cross court was uh, putting center in a very tough spot. First ball, back, first ball, difficult backhand. Alcaraz camped on the ad side. He was losing a lot of second serve points and some big ones in that US Open match. And I think in, in this one, he he made that slight adjustment and, and went to the forehand more.
0: Yeah, I definitely noticed that as well. Um But yeah, it's it's definitely very interesting when you look at um when you look at how each of these matches, I feel like this rivalry is gonna be super close because each of these times I feel like we're gonna see one kind of solved the other ones. We're gonna see them kind of go really back and forth in a way where I could see them being like, like you—you almost come into these matches not knowing who's gonna win, and I feel like that's that's great. I mean, we didn't even have that for some of the big three matches.
1: Yeah, it's it is great, uh, and it's an it's a bonus almost. It feels like a bonus because Sinner isn't really on Alcaraz's level against the rest of the field. Yeah. So we're, I think it's given Sinner so much juice uh, as a, just as a a figure in, in men's tennis that he does beat Alcaraz. I, I think it elevates him to another level because obviously Carlos is going to be likely his premier rival or the, the person that stands in the way of Sinner winning big titles throughout his career is going to be Alcaraz. And the fact that he does play him really, really well, and at this point, it's no coincidence. It's just his skill set and and the things he's able to do against him. Uh, that that sets him up very nicely. It's important for him, and I also think it is good for the sport. Yeah,
0: definitely. And it'll be interesting to see if they ever do meet kind of mid tournament if Sinner is able to have the physical reserves afterwards to sort of back up those big wins. Because you know, I've heard a lot of people say like, you know, had he Won that match point, he would have gone on and won the U.S. Open. Yeah. But I'm kind of like, we don't know that for sure. Like, you know, we don't, we don't really know if he had, if he would have the physical reserves to then go through a in informed Galfou and Rude in the final. But yeah.
1: I think you make a good point. Yeah, because that's physically, it's a tall, tall order. And Alcaraz and Sinner, especially last year, uh, physically, they, they they really weren't comparable. Uh, we saw Yannick's body break down so many times last year. And, yeah, and also I should we should say Tiafo played an excellent semifinal. Yeah. You can't tell by the score, but the level was high. So yes. it's not like Francis came into that match and he was overwhelmed by the moment or something like that. Nothing like that. I think he was ready to, you know, put in a great performance, and he kind of did. But uh, Alcaraz just posed too many problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, Sinner is looking much more into the future when it comes to his success it definitely feels like he's not about the now and he's more about like building up his entire arsenal like he's still in the process of developing his body i mean he's maybe put on five kilos of muscle in the off season but it feels like there's still quite a ways to go physically
1: seven pounds i don't know what's the what's the trans uh the conversion there yeah I think it's like two
0: point five kgs is one pound so okay yeah that's i mean that's quite a that's not as huge amount, but it's you you can definitely feel the physical difference because he is much more explosive now in the corners i feel like mm-hmm. um and it definitely does help his it, it, it definitely just helps him stay stay a little bit more able to like carry his weight across if that makes any sense and he's able to just last a bit longer but but yeah you still still see some of those fragilities um sort of at the back end of these tournaments and that's kind of the final step
1: yep yep um last year as i mentioned there were a lot of injuries he probably he would have He would have had a good chance to make another Miami final last year if he didn't have those blisters. Now, that's not really a a physical strength thing. I don't think. I could be wrong. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, But you look at Sinner's quarterfinal record last year. It was really, really poor. His his record at the beginning of of events was just phenomenal. He he took very few uh, bad losses last year, but his performances... uh, Going into the week, they, you know, as, as the week or the events progressed, the level would generally start to dissipate. And I think the body was mostly to blame for that.
0: Yeah. And it it, it didn't feel like there were any major physical issues. It just felt like small little niggles. But they just yeah. kept kinda they they lasted for about a week or two and then it just then he was fine again. But it's yeah. It was it just felt like something had to be done to Improve that physical durability, but I think we're seeing those changes now. So that's definitely a step in the right d- direction, I guess. But uh, um I guess where are you at with Karen Hachinal? Because obviously now he's made you know three three of the last five, I guess, Masters one thousands and higher on hard courts. He's been to the semis, and he's kind of a guy who you know, kind know. If, has hovered been that ten to thirty range in the rankings? And just kind of we saw his career high ranking of number eight, I think, in twenty nineteen. Um, and he's obviously been to a couple of semifinals now. He's won a Masters one thousand. He has an Olympic silver medal. Hasn't managed to win a title since that twenty eighteen Paris Masters. But how are you feeling kind of generally about his game? And I feel like the average quality of his level has definitely improved. But nothing really kind of just stands out or
1: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Well, I think he's kind of learned himself a little bit more and and what his strengths are as a player. Similar to Medvedev actually, because Medvedev had, had the funky forehand and I think in in 2018, if you would have watched him, he was fairly aggressive uh, as as a player, and that just didn't really suit him. And then he realized, I can get in awesome shape, and I have the ability to be incredibly consistent with my big serve and my phenomenal, you know, tricky backhand. And that's kind of what helped Medvedev make the leap. I think Hachinov, in a somewhat similar respect, if I were to pinpoint one area where he's really improved, it's just missing less forehands. And I don't think he's changed the forehand. I just think he doesn't feel like he's having to do as much on the forehand because he's really, really tough physically. He's in phenomenal shape. He's got great rally tolerance. He rarely makes unforced errors on on the backhand side to begin with. And he can just become, you know, another one of these kind of big serving, consistent players. I don't think his serve is at the level of some of the other six foot six guys, but if, if you look at the tour average, she's still a, a far above average server. Uh, then I think in the best of five format in the majors, he he also seems really, really mentally tough. He, he never goes away. He's able to play long matches and just stay engaged the entire time, every single point. Uh, and I think that's really suited him well. His best of five set record is way better than his best of three set record. So I didn't really see this run in Miami coming, uh, but... I've been I've been really impressed with him, you know, ever since the US Open. Um not not every week, but I think his ranking of 11 in the world right now um it's about right. Now, I I don't see him getting that much higher than this. Uh I don't know what what it's looking like in terms of defending points. Um actually, oh, actually he has no points to defend, I think. Uh, for the beginning of the clay court season, if I remember correctly. But yeah. that that aside, do I think the ceiling is top five? I don't. I don't see that ceiling, the, the, the touch, the variety, the dynamicness of the forehand. Like sometimes the forehand can look great, but only when high contact point gets his body weight into it lots of time. So it, it can be a good forehand, but it, it's a limited forehand. Uh, the serve, as I mentioned, isn't isn't at the elite level. It's just really, really good, I would say. Um, and then I don't know if I the first thing I said was movement or if I'm if I left that off because yeah, the movement at six foot six, it's it's also not at at a Medvedev level, not even close.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He definitely leaves a little to be desired in that department when you compare him to like a Medvedev or a Sperry or a Harcotte. Same with the big serving as well, but. Yeah, I think he's probably going to be like this generation's PCB or something. Just, you know, pretty consistent, reliable, beats majority of everyone outside the top 20. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really, I think he's pretty surface versatile, which holds well, I would say. Yep. Um, but yeah, I don't really see him being like a top five player, but, you know, certainly he could get to another Master Spinal or something if a draw opens up or that kind of thing, but yeah, he he's definitely seems like a pretty hard worker. I was there at Indian Wells actually for the for the um on the Friday before the tournament ended, so that would have been the women's semifinals. And I just saw Hachino there practicing for like four hours. Wow! I think he was just hitting his forehand, and that's all they what, were. What What do you think?
1: What do you think he's improved most?
0: Honestly, I just feel like he is a lot more sure of himself just as a competitor. He just looks like he's a lot more. He just looks like he's, he he just seems to have a lot more internal relief, it seems like. Yeah. In these big moments. I've seen him more willing to use his backhand down the line in some big occasions. Um, because obviously he has a really s- solid backhand, but now in terms of actually making an offensive move, um, you know, like that first set tiebreak against Korda, he, he was quite gutsy in that one and he. Started to sort of use that consistency, but then actually produce some consistent offense with it. And so I feel like he's just a little bit like sort of five percent better in kind of every area, I guess, and just more more sure of himself just on the court. And just and I feel like he's not—he knows where his game is at. Like kind of at this point in his career, like he's twenty-seven years old. He has no—he knows he's not going to get that much better technically, but the forehand is secure enough to where he feels like, okay, I can actually maybe in the right conditions do some damage with it. And it's interesting though that all of his best some of his best results have recently come on fast courts with that kind of a forehand grip. It's a little bit like Tiafo as well, I guess. US Open and Australian Open and feels like some of the bigger hardcore tournaments where the courts are a little bit faster is where he tends to do better, which is not something
1: you would associate with that kind of technique. True. Uh, and and he even said that he thinks the Miami conditions suit him much better than the Indian Wells conditions. So not only have his results said that, but I think he's he has that that opinion of of his own game, uh, which is meaningful. Um, yeah, I, I don't think the forehand is that easy to rush. It can be rushed, but my bigger issue with the forehand is I I think as a finishing weapon, it lacks the precision. A lot of the time. And I think once he gets inside the baseline uh, to hit the forehand, that becomes even more important. And that's been my biggest qualm with the forehand. And then the other thing is, you know, the power that he brings on it, I think takes some, you know, a lot of time to produce. Yeah. I also
0: feel like he's not quite as, he, he's not clinical enough at the net uh, and his transition game. He he'd definitely much rather build points from the baseline and kind of use his backhand to set up the offense. And then he's not, he just doesn't seem very comfortable kind of transitioning forward finishing. Well, no,
1: no, no, he's got, he's got, I, I mean, C grade volleys. Yeah. I mean, the, the willingness to go come forward isn't there either. And, uh, you know, that's why the Medvedev match was interesting because I feel like he had part, you know, one piece of the puzzle, which is matched Daniel for consistency and, and yeah. play him tough and make him suffer in the heat and suffer with him. And Hatchinov had that part of it, it down, but if he could come forward and finish a little more of those points, I think it would have been a, a problem for Medvedev. I think he could have put him in a lot of danger. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a good effort, I guess, to get a set and make it decisive enough where it came down to one core service game and a third by him, but Yeah. Definitely something interesting, I mean, good run for Chris e banks getting to the quarters, and uh I guess you know did some commentary for tennis channel as well, so just wanted to shout about,
1: yeah, amazing to see that i mean it it meant so much to him, he's didn't you know he's not taking it anything for granted he's it's taken him a long time uh it's been a lot of hard work and uh, by all accounts, he's just an amazing guy. I mean, everybody roots for him. So, yeah, that was awesome to see.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to switch over a little bit to the women's game and just kind of talk about the general landscape of the WTA. Just because, uh, obviously, you know, we've seen Rybakina now in three big finals this year, and we've seen Sabalenka really take her game to the next level, uh, fixing all the service issues that she had last year. And then, obviously, you know, shpiontek As after a stellar year last year, you know, definitely has found some rivals at the top of the game that can suddenly challenge her and take her time away. And we're seeing a little bit more of a even distribution in terms of wins and titles and stuff like that and matchups. And I would even put Krijikova in there as well. And then um, it just kind of feels like the the big hitters and the powerful baseliners are kind of back in fashion. When you kind of look at the top 20 and you sort of see... You no know, Samsonova and Samlinco and um yeah i mean Shinwen Wen starting to do some big things as well and Artopova and players like that um you you definitely start to see more of those big hitters more of those big hitters i guess big bait kind of tennis back in style again
1: yeah i agree and i think it it's a it's a good thing against iga uh to to play that way uh because she's you know really a a master a master from the baseline if you're going to play play her from neutral it's it's very very tough sledding i mean we see her return numbers through the roof and i don't even know that it's because of her return i think it's just cuz she's winning rallies at an a, enormous clip uh but on these quicker surfaces especially the fact that rebakina and sabalenka especially can can thoroughly outserve her and then try to make her uncomfortable with with their aggressive returning um, and as you mentioned take time away. It's been uh it's been a really difficult uh and significant antidote to what what Shviontech wants on the court, which is for the most part, you know, time on the ball on, on on her forehand side and and she wants neutrality as well. She needs to get into into points. Um so it, it has been very exciting because, frankly, last year, while we always kind of, like, there always has to be other players having success. There can never be one player having success. Somebody's going to be making finals. Somebody's going to be making semis. You know, that was last year's Jabur, That was Hallop for a bit. But in earnest, if you were making tears on the women's game. You could not put anybody in tier one with Iga. You you could not. It was just her, and I I think now it's a it's a three player tier one with Krejcikova potentially deserving to be there. Just hasn't quite shown it. Uh, You know, two losses to Sabalenka. I mean, it doesn't. You know, it's it's hard to judge based on that. But she could get there. So uh, I think it's very positive. Um, especially because they're all young and they're all exciting and they've delivered us some good matches as well.
0: Yeah. Did you have Petra a winning the Miami Open? <laughs> no.
1: Look, Petra, everybody knows that she can do this. Like, yeah. on a quick surface, she can get hot and start to start to time the ball uh, really well and, and harness her power in the best possible ways. And we saw it at Cincinnati last year. She can flip a switch and go on a huge run uh she's not as old as it seems dare i say she's 32 and yeah. it it kind of feels like she should be like 35 or something but she's not and i i think that's because she's had a a couple of a couple of moments in her career where she's been going on a downward trajectory so it's felt like oh kovitova is done and that's why i think we make her maybe a little bit older than she is but the fact that she's been able to turn it around and now she's back in the top 10 and oh she's 32 uh so you know we've seen in in modern not just modern tennis but in modern sports that we're going to start to see that more and more and 32 is not going to be as old as it was in the 90s so you know it was great to see and i tweeted this but for anyone who's listening who 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 didn't see this um it was it was interesting because i was walking behind the, the bleachers in inside Hard Rock Stadium next to that turfy area where I'm not actually allowed to go. But I, I, I am allowed to uh, get pretty close to there. And I was watching. And Kvitova was with her uh, coach and fiancé slash husband. I don't think the wedding has happened yet. But Yuri Vanek, who she got engaged to at Wimbledon last year, and they were kicking around a soccer ball and my god they were having fun it was like she's never done it in her life before it was like uh cool. it was like she was a, a a kid and i mean that in the best possible way and uh it did strike me about you know just how happy she looked just warming up uh before her match so that was interesting that's one thing that i never would have saw if i unless i was there um and you know it's something that is really helpful on tour to stay happy i mean i think I think Alcaraz already has that down pat uh, yeah. and I think it it's can go a long way yeah certainly if you
0: exude some of that joy and you take that pressure off yourself that's when you certainly play your best sense yeah
1: um, and that's kind of what I, I, and, I also and feel like Sabalenka and, Sabalenka yeah. I, I saw that that you you tweeted about that recently as well that she seems really loose and happy oh, yeah. and, and enjoying things and I agree with that
0: yeah, I mean, you just see her, like, even when she plays a few bad service games, a few bad moments, she kind of just she, she realizes the bigger picture, you know. She realizes that, you know, things are going very well right now. and it's Just kind of savors that moment. Yeah, so definitely I think, you know, when players take some of that pressure off themselves and they relieve themselves of that burden of performing week in and week out and just kind of enjoy the process, that's when you start to see better results. But I do wonder what this means going forward for Meduva. It's really impossible to know, just given the kind of streaky player that she generally has been throughout her whole career. But you would think she would do reasonably well on the clay in Stuttgart and Madrid and then probably pick up her form on the grass at Wimbledon. But it's just going to be interesting to see if she can find that type of light, lightning in the bottle and sustain that a bit longer.
1: Yeah. Quarterfinals at Indian Wells was uh, impressive, you know, so it, it wasn't just one week. Uh, I think she beat Ostapenko, who is very sick at Indian Wells, uh, battling an illness, but then Pagula, a pretty awesome win in the third set tiebreak in the round of 16. So that's yeah. uh, that's on the positive side that, you know, she she has been kind of sustaining some eye-opening form, but at the same time, I would pretty much agree with you that it doesn't necessarily mean all that much for what we're going to see in the in the coming weeks the coming months uh, but i i think i think it'll be most interesting to see if she can make another wimbledon run yeah definitely cuz
0: she's won two titles there before and this was a 30th career title i mean it's pretty insane we don't really think of her as one of the most consistent players but then when you when you have when your highs on that high And you're able to, you know, I think eight consecutive years in the top 10 and was one match away from being number one. Um, And, yeah, I think this was her ninth WT1000. And you just go through has, yeah, I mean, 30 titles is the second most amongst active players right now. So that's, it certainly feels like she can add to that number. And it's, you know, she's only 33, but you feel like there's a couple of good years still left in her.
1: Yeah, I, I do. And I think there's this saying that's very popular in the fight game, which is that the power is the last to go. So fighters decline in a lot of ways. Uh, usually their their chin or their, their ability to take a punch really starts to diminish with age, and they might get slower. Uh, their reflexes might uh, diminish, usually do, which hurts their defense. And all of these things get worse and worse and worse. But the one thing that doesn't go is their power. I actually think it's kind of true in tennis. You usually, gets slower, and you you might start to get injured more. Uh, but I, I don't think with age, Kvitova's ball striking is going to get any less overwhelming from an offensive standpoint. And that is that's how she wins. So it's it's the style of play that I think you're looking for. If if you're if you're trying to project, okay, how well is she going to be able to continue to play? Now into her mid thirties, she projects much better because of her play style.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was also kind of interesting to observe on both the men's and the women's side. The players that went really deep at Indian Wells, they actually did sustain that form and went pretty yeah. deep in Miami as well. So, as much as we talk about the different differences in the balls and the conditions and the you know and the humidity
1: versus the dry air at Indian Wells, and that wasn't you know, true last you know, year, though, right? Well. I I no, think yeah, if I if, sure. yeah I think. On the men's side, I remember, Alcaraz and ketsmanovic were yeah. the only two players to make the quarterfinals. On the women's side, the only thing that's coming back to me is Sakari uh, lost first round in Miami. Yeah, she did. And then,
0: I mean, you, had, you got doing the Sunshine Double, but apart from that, there wasn't really much yeah. continuation of success. But... Yeah, I mean the courts were definitely playing a bot faster as well this year. Um it's generally been more medial I felt like this time it was almost Cincinnati level, Cincinnati level fast,
1: I guess. Uh yeah, which which apparently was like flat out a James Blake decision. That's that's what I ended up hearing that he uh he was like let's speed this up, you know, sometimes Sometimes conditions change, and it's a little bit kind of murky or trivial, and nobody can really figure out what happened here, or did it really change, or just did did one player say it, and then it blew up on social media. But with Miami, this was very real. This was James Blake making a decision, asking the courts to be sped up, and they were.
0: Yeah, for sure. And of course, at Indian Wells, the players use the pen balls, and then they go to the Dunlop ones. Yep. And these ones travel a little bit faster through the year,
1: I would imagine. They fly in a lot um, more, I guess. The Dunlop balls are, are quicker, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, look, they haven't been very popular. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I a, a lot of players have just been saying that they're very, very fast out of the can, but then they fluff up, so then they get slow, and they're not good for the, the, the arm or the wrist. Uh, mostly, Medvedev has said that. Uh, but then at the same time, Brooksby had wrist surgery. Corda hurt her wrist uh, his wrist yeah. uh, Nelly is okay as far as we know which is good but uh, are, were there any more were there any more wrist injuries or just Corda and Brooksby uh, and then I guess Sitsiplas with the shoulder oh know, it's a, right well. yes, but, yes.
0: Um, yeah um, yeah definitely and I mean Tsitsipas where are you at with him coming into the clay court season of course huh. defending the Monte Carlo title and I mean Everyone was definitely surprised to a certain extent, you know, why he was playing these last couple these last couple of terms, particularly um, particularly Indian Wells, I thought. But um, Miami especially, he did pick up a good win over Christian Green and then lost a tight one to You out. But um, there was a lot of confusion, especially on Twitter I saw about the, um, yeah. you know, like on-site withdrawal versus what he was saying about, you know, his best result being taken away in the points, um, the points of Monte Carlo potentially not being there, that players are required to play all the Masters, and it was very confusing, especially in the rule-by.
1: Yeah, it was very confusing, very. Um, people, you know, still aren't really on the same page about it and, and never really were, uh, but, I mean... I I'm concerned for him for the clay season because I don't understand what the plan is for the shoulder getting better uh because I mean I don't know how much how much progress was made with between Indian Wells and Miami with his ability to to hit over the backhand because generally I'm not a a doctor but usually uh, rest is is part of the recovery plan here uh, or at least if not rest, then you know active recovery in a way that that doesn't strain whatever the injury is, and obviously hitting one-handers, which clearly was bothering him. Now I, I do think he was coming more flat through the ball, and that was actually helping his his shoulder uh, not get as get as stressed. But it was jarring to see; it, it really was, because here was a player who was definitely not healthy enough to be competing. Who is out there playing? Yeah, what did you make of it? Maybe
0: he unlocked something there with the, taking the ball earlier on the backhand and flattening it out, and maybe
1: that's you something thought? he can. Yeah, maybe that's something he can alter in his technique moving forward. So you you thought the backhand ended up looking pretty good with with the fact that he needed to hit it flat.
0: I felt like when he needed to, and he felt like and um, and you know when he was just completely going for broke. Then I felt like it was it was good, but the consistency wasn't there at all. Most of the time he was he was struggling to get it over the net in some big moments. Particularly the particularly the, the first set tie-breaking against Hachinov, it really failed him. So I wouldn't really say I wouldn't really say he had a successful he made any kind of tangible improvement between the New wheels and Miami, but
1: um yeah. That's an interesting point. I I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of the thinking. I don't know. Let's see, but it's an interesting thought.
0: Yeah, um, I would be surprised if it actually translated itself, particularly on the clay, where he's going to be rewarded a lot more with time, and he can actually drop back and really use that, you know, the heavy topspin. But he's going to need that shot on the clay because, yes, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's generally where he's the most productive in the whole year. So it's got to be healthy for that portion.
1: Yeah, I mean, what does he do? Because if it's not better at Monte Carlo, I I think at some point you need to just you need to accept the fact that you might yeah. need to you might need to sit out for for a couple weeks in order to let it get better. Yeah, it was definitely surprising
0: to see him back so quickly in 2021 after the elbow procedure. If you remember, um, yeah, it was basically sort of a five week off season break, and then you know he was pretty much back to full force in Australia. But that was certainly, yeah, a different type of injury. But, yeah, we're just left kind of with some ambiguity as to how his physical health actually is.
1: Yeah, well, look, he, he did make a lot of money uh, from from playing. And not just the prize money I'm referring to, but one thing for sure, you are definitely, I don't think, eligible for the bonus pool If you miss one of the 1000s and if you, if you're one of the top five performers in the masters 1000s, you get an enormous check at the end of the year. And I'm talking, I'm talking, you know, a a million plus, um, in, of, of bonus pool money from the masters 1000s events, but you are ineligible if you miss any of them. So,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I I mean, obviously there were some things probably that could have been done, like, you know, some, tournament PR, I guess, or like on-site withdrawal requirements that you would probably have had to meet if you'd like showed up on site and then like didn't play and all that. But
1: we don't need to worry about that. Yeah, it's better. It's better if we move on from that.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but but were there any kind of things that stood out to you in terms of other players in Miami, particularly in the first week when we saw a lot of upsets, Hasparu, Nori, players like that, like a still trying to find their footing
1: hmm i mean i was uh like front row for the nori match nobody was there so i i i had the 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 expensive seats right behind the baseline and uh i just think i just think it was it was striking how quick the courts were in the sense that you know you saw alice and Manorino and barrer all playing great and these are kind of kind of indoor hardcourt Frenchman with these really flat, aggressive games. But uh, Nori, I I think there might've been a little bit of ankle pain going on that was distracting him, but he seemed very, very rushed by, by Brer and just the, the precision impressed me. Uh, There was no wind, which I think was important for Barrer because he, he's such a precision player. There's so little margin in his game, but he was crushing returns. He was changing direction at a, at a really high rate. uh, So he wasn't letting Nori really ever get comfortable in the points. And it was a, it was a stunner of a performance by Barrere. So look, not that Nori was at his best. He wasn't, but I ended up kind of watching that match and was just so impressed that Barrera. I I was waiting for him to drop off and he never did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I really felt like some of those, uh, Ace absorbers, I guess you could say. And ace absorbers and faster. The players who you would think would do a lot better on those faster, lower bouncing stick surfaces. They definitely did fare a lot better here. Although, that being said, yeah, coach I guess, yeah, Hercotch, Mandarino, Ferrer. Players like that, yeah.
1: Yeah. I haven't been too high on Hercotch, Even though the results haven't been that bad, I, I think. He's very close. Like, it could be a disastrous season. He's actually been very clutch. He's won a bunch of third-set tie breaks, early rounds, maybe against players that he he should be beating a little bit more comfortably. Uh, So he's actually pulled off a lot of wins that could have gone either way. And even still, it hasn't been a huge year. But I'm just not seeing uh, a ton of progress in his baseline game. And and the forehand just still looks the same to me. And it's... I, I want to see that shot get better because I, I think he can pose some big problems if he was able to improve that shot. It's just not really uh, not really developing in my eyes. Yeah.
0: Definitely. Um, he does play a lot of tie breaks. So we're going to see quite a few... Quite a few, yeah. Just, he, he plays quite a lot of tie breaks, actually. I was looking through his record. It's... Yeah, there's there's some matches like he definitely pulled off that were impressive in terms of the questioners and then there's others where the forehand just lets him down in the,
1: in the big spots. Yeah, I, I suppose when you're playing so many close matches, you're gonna you're gonna have both of those things happen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so,
0: but yeah, I mean, so where are you at with like the start of the clay court season like Nadal coming back in the picture and Djokovic coming back from this long layoffs. Do you think he's been you know, especially Djokovic?
1: Well, I mean, Look, it's been such an impressive couple months for Medvedev Center Alcaraz, where they've been, you know, at the business end of every every tournament they've been in. And uh, it's it's really exciting to think that all right, let's bring in Novak here. See what happens. Let's bring in Rafa here. See what happens. It's, it's kind of like uh, putting more explosives in the test tube. It's a really bad analogy, but that's what I got. Um, and with Nadal, the intrigue is going to be enormous. Now, part of me, part of me uh, watches with one eye open because the discourse is so uh, silly a lot of the times. With when you know. Nadal or Djokovic is involved, and especially recently with Rafa, it's been it's been quite dramatic at times. Um, but at the same time, this is a crossroads because there hasn't been any continuity for Rafa, and he needs to find some continuity, or or his level is going to start to, uh, I think, suffer as a result of all of the stop start stop start. Where you know for for all of his career, he's always been able to maintain just enough continuity uh that that it's still been okay when he plays even though he's will miss some time with injuries you know pretty much every season here and there but when he plays he's going to be top shelf he's going to be tier 1 elite and i i think if if we don't see it at some point this clay court season then then there's definitely some logical concern that maybe yeah. that era for for Rafa might be in the rearview mirror for novak I think, I think I'm think i really curious to see the forehand. Um, it was so big at the start of the year and uh, the style of play. And it, it just feels like he's he's starting to embrace the power side of his game more and more and how that's going to translate to the clay. But we're all waiting for, for a djokovic Alcaraz match. I mean, it's what we yeah. need. Um, and it's going to be huge when it happens. I think it'll happen at some point over the course of the clay court season. It's going to be truly exciting when it does. Yeah. It's and on the women's side, Iga, um, you know, is gonna is gonna kind of come off that that empty-handed sunshine double and kind of be the favorite again. And it's it's I'm ex I'm excited to see kind of how much the surface might bring things back to Sviantek uh, being kind of alone at the top, um, and and if it does. And I also think that there are some other players who are 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 brought into the mix more so by the clay. And I think I think Sakari is at the top of that list. I think for for Krejcikova, it potentially could could help her uh, even get to to another level. Although I think she's pretty surface uh, versatile. Um, who else is really Bedosa, I think is a little bit better on the clay than she is on on the hard courts. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think mostly Sakari and Bedosa. Are there any other are there any women obviously if, if Halep if Halep were playing that, she would be another, but are there any players who you think are, are kind of elevated by the clay on the women's side that that I haven't mentioned? Um, well I
0: mean th- what's interesting on the women's side is it it feels like there's only one event. And that's a <laughs> That's true. Which is like most similar in conditions to Roland Garros. Whereas the others I could just see power baseliners doing really well And again. Like in terms oh, of yeah. Stuttgart and Madrid. And I mean I am interested to see how Sviantek handles the altitude and if she actually plays Madrid this year, because I think that's the only clay court tournament where we actually haven't seen her hmm. level like, winning form. But in terms of in terms of other players, Coco, Coco is I mean, the
1: one that I forgot. Yeah,
0: Coco Golf and I guess Kazakina yeah. as well made the semis last year. And at the French, we haven't really seen any amazing results from her since the Not... Middle East. But, um, yeah, I'm interested to see if Ribakina's first strike tennis, would work as well on the slower clay, or whether that was, or whether was some of the
1: some of the X factor with the movement might come into play. I think Sabalenka can be more dominant from the baseline compared to Rybakina. Uh, so I, I feel that Sabalenka is a little bit, what will be more successful um, at Rome and at Roland Garros compared to Rybakina.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm keeping my eye out for Jabor as well because, I mean, last year I remember she won Madrid and got to the finals of Rome. and Yes. Um, had a disappointing first round loss at Roland Garros, but hasn't really been able to find her stride since the U.S. Open injuries being a big part of that.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Um, but yeah, and then and then of course the physicality of Sakari and whether she can keep that consistent level up.
1: Yeah, I, don't I think... enjoy watching her. I enjoy watching her most on the clay uh, because she she really can. Cover the court and do a ton of running, and um, you know, she also has the power to hit through the clay. She ne- she never seems underpowered either, so she has that that good athletic combination of speed and power that that should suit her well. It's so mental with her, obviously. Everybody knows that, so uh, that'll be that'll be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, and then I, I obviously have my eye on Karolina Mukova and Bianca Andreescu as well, in terms of. Yeah, players that have both the power and the variety and have done well on play in the past, especially Mukova. I mean in rescue I'm a little bit holding off on just because of the scary injury in Miami, but hopefully she comes back quickly.
1: Yeah. She I think she I think it's a couple of weeks. Uh the the news was pretty positive that it wasn't uh she didn't break the ankle. It doesn't seem like a Zverev situation, so that that that's good.
0: Yeah, and that's about it. I would I would probably watch out for Potapova as well. That's maybe another name to look out for.
1: Yeah, good one. Yep. Yeah.
0: yeah, she seems like she has the game that could work everywhere. But uh, yeah, Gil, this was uh, quite fun. It's quite late day as well in the in the evening where we're at, uh, but. It was great to kind of get your take on a lot of different topics and a lot of different players on boat tours. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy the rest of the clay season and the start of the next swing, I guess, um, as will I and as will our listeners. So, yeah, thanks for coming on.
1: Absolutely. Uh, keep up the great work. Uh, pleasure to come on. And uh, anytime. Yeah. Thanks, Gil. Thanks, Vansh.